again, if you, have a, if you have a Bible, go with me to Genesis chapter 3. We'll be in the first, uh, first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3. And as you're turning there, let me say it's great to be back with you. I'm so thankful uh, for the invitation and thankful for this church. And uh, Pastor Jimmy asked me to preach on Christmas in the Old Testament, which is something that's near and dear to my heart. So I'm uh, excited to be able to do that. We'll be in Genesis 3 verse 1 here in just a second. But I, wanna, I want you to imagine a scenario like, I don't know about your, at your house, but at my house this time of year at Christmas, it seems like between Thanksgiving and Christmas that every single day we receive a Christmas card from somebody, from a friend or a family member. Uh, we get these, you know, these pictures where everybody goes out, uh, whether it's, you know, at, at the, take a picture at the beach with their family or out under some trees when the leaves change or the railroad track or whatever. You take this nice picture of your family, you, you download the, the, you know, the schematic or whatever, put it on there, and then you send out the Christmas cards. And everybody, uh, we, get, we get tons of those. We do it too uh, most years. And so you get, you get a Christmas card in the mail. But I, I want you to imagine that this week when you walk to your mailbox and you open it up, you pull out a Christmas card from a friend of yours or a family member of yours who has died. And the return address on the envelope says heaven. That might be pretty unique, wouldn't it? Might make you, you know, think what in the world's going on here. And then when you open up that envelope, you read something that says, I asked the big guy if I could sneak back and send some cards. At first he said no. But at my insistence, he finally said, oh, well, what the heaven? Go ahead, but don't tarry there. Wish I could tell you about things here, but words cannot explain. I better get back. As the big guy says, he stretched a point to let me in the first time, so I better not press my luck. <laughs> Wishing you a Merry Christmas. Well, about 15 years ago, this actually happened. There was a man named Chet Fitch who died at the age of 88 in October. And then about a month and a half later at Christmas time, all of his friends and all of his family members began to receive these Christmas cards that he had written to them uh, with the return address, heaven. Okay, now you say, well, there's got to be an explanation for it. Well, there is an explanation for it. He had, over the course of 20 years, concocted this one last joke to play on his friends and family members and had his barber, a lady named Patty Dean, help him do it. And so he gave her money to pay for the stamps. He gave her all the cards. And he said, "Whenever, whatever Christmas comes, the, the immediate Christmas after I die, I want you to send out these cards. And so he apparently was a joker and uh, had you know, played one last joke on his friends and his family members. And so it's, it's funny but it's also telling, right? In that card that he wrote back to his friends and his family members, Chet seemed to think, uh, what I think many people think, it's that heaven is based on a point system. He says God kind of graded on a curve, you know? He, he stretched some points so that I was able to get into heaven. And this idea is, you know, if I, if I basically do more good things than bad things, if I'm basically a good person then I get to go to heaven when I die. And that's what so many people think, right? I think I got to live a good life. I've got to be a good person. I've got to do basically more good than bad. I've got to, uh, you know, treat my neighbor well, follow the golden rule, go to church. You know, if I'm the kind of person who does all of those 
things. I follow the golden rule. I say grace before meals. I, uh, I, I celebrate Christmas. You know, I say Merry Christmas rather than Happy Holidays. And I go to the Christmas Eve service and, and I, we get dressed up at Easter and we take a nice picture of our family. If, if, I'm, if I'm that kind of person, then God's going to be merciful and God is going to let me into heaven. But that raises a really important question. That, that question is, if heaven is actually based on a point system, then what's the purpose of Christmas? Like, why did we need Christmas at all? If, if, if all that we needed was this, this information that you need to be a basically good person, that just be better, do better, if that's all that we needed, then why did Christ need to come to earth? Well, the Bible tells us why Jesus needed to come to earth. The Bible tells us why we needed Christmas. When, when the angel comes to Joseph and tells Joseph what to call Jesus when Jesus is born, he says, call him Jesus. Why? Because he is going to save his people from their sins. So what that means is we are sinners and we desperately need God's forgiveness. We need a savior to come into human existence and to rescue us from our sin. Now, this idea of sin and being rescued from our sin goes all the way back to what may be the most important chapter in the entire Bible because it explains everything that's going on, not just in the Bible, but everything that's going on in our own existence, and that's Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 is where sin is introduced into the human experience. It's introduced into the world by Satan. And so because of what happens in Genesis 3, we know some things about ourselves, okay? We know some things about ourselves. We, we know that we are sinners by nature, that, that Adam has passed down to his offspring a sin nature. So it is certain that we will sin, Okay, there's, there's no getting around it. There's no, you know, if I just have the right amount of effort or the right amount of information, I'm not going to sin. No, we will sin. Anybody who's a parent who's ever looked at their children knows, right, we are sinners by nature. Uh, I know they're, they're cute, they're cuddly, they do all kinds of funny things. They also do bad things, right? We don't have to teach our kids to be selfish. They're naturally selfish. We don't have to teach our kids to disobey they naturally disobey. We have to teach them to be unselfish. We have to teach them to obey. We have to teach ourselves to be unselfish and to obey. And so we are, we are sinners by nature. It is certain that we will sin. Not only that, just like Adam and Eve, we join in with them and we are sinners by choice. Okay, We, we make decisions every single day to sin, to, to lie or to be impatient or to be selfish or to be lustful or to be greedy or to be impatient or bitter or whatever it may be. We, we make those choices. We choose to sin. Remember the story that I, I get told often uh, when I was a kid. I have a twin brother named Nathan. Uh, Pastor Jimmy mentioned that we do a podcast together. But when we were really little, uh, like three or four years old, my brother Nathan went and I don't know why he did this, went into my parents' bathroom and drank a bottle of nail polish remover, okay? And so my parents kind of freaked out, called, I think, poison control. They're like, we'll take him to the emergency room. They took him to the emergency room. My dad still, he, anytime he tells a story, he gets really mad because he said, we waited in the emergency room for six hours. And then they finally brought him back, and they said, what are you here for? And he's like, he drank a bottle of nail polish remover. And they said, well, if nothing's happened to him by now. He's fine. Y'all can go home. And he said, they charged me for that. Like, I had to, I had to pay... <laughs> I had to pay for that. And so, uh, but because of that, 
there was a rule at our house that we were not allowed into my parents' bathroom, okay? So one day, I walk into my parents' room, and I go around to where I can look into their bathroom. My dad's in there shaving, and for whatever reason, I just come up to the edge of where the, the carpet from the bathroom ends and the tile to the, to the bathroom begins, and uh, I'm just looking at my dad with this, you know, grin on my face, and my dad just looks at me and says, John, you know the rules. If, if, if you come in here, you're going to get a spanking. And so what I chose to do was, as I was right there at the edge, I took my foot, and as quickly as I could, I touched the tile and came back. And what do you think my dad did? He whooped my tail. Yeah, he whooped my tail because I made a choice to do something that I knew that I should not do. We all choose to sin. Not only are we sinners by nature, are we sinners by choice, but we have sins committed against us, people who wrong us, people who hurt us. There are people who are abused by parents or abused by other people who are mistreated, stabbed in the back, cheated on. We are sinned against not only that, Genesis 3 explains to us that we, we just, because of human sin, we live in a broken world where bad things just happen, okay? Can't always figure out the explanation for why these happen, like can't understand why somebody gets cancer and somebody else doesn't, like but we just live in a world that's broken by sin and so bad things happen. And so because of that, because of all this that sin has done and sin is causing, we need a Savior. We need somebody to come into human existence, deal with the sin problem, and save us from our sins. And so Genesis 3, as we read here in just a second, is not going to just give us the problem and show us what's going on wrong, but it also gives us the solution. There is a promise given in Genesis 3 of a Savior. This is the first promise in the Old Testament about Christmas, about the, the birth of a child who is going to be a Savior. And so here's the, the, the thing that Christmas teaches us. Because we can't get up to God, God comes down to us to rescue us in our sin. And so let's, let's look and see what the Bible says here in Genesis chapter 3. We're going to read from verse 1 down through verse 15. Moses wrote these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? 
The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. May God bless the reading of his word. Just two things, basically, that we see here in Genesis chapter 3. The first thing that we see is that, that we need the good news of Christmas because of our sin. Like, we have a need. We need the good news of Christmas because of our sin. Now, just to give you the context of what's happening here in Genesis 3, again, probably the most important chapter, or one of the most important chapters in the Bible, is that we are at the beginning of creation. God has created the world, and He created it good, which means everything works the way it's supposed to work. And specifically what that means is relationships work the way that they're supposed to work. That man's relationship with God is an intimate one where he has a close relationship with God. Man's relationship with each other is working out well. And man's relationship with the world around him is working the way that it is supposed to work. All of this is in harmony. But in Genesis chapter 3, the serpent who later the Bible identifies as Satan, comes into the garden and disrupts all of this by tempting Eve and Adam to sin. Now, there's a lot of detail we could go into, but there's, there's basically two strategies that I want to focus on that Satan uses to cause Adam and Eve to sin. And those strategies are, one, to cause people to doubt the Word of God, and then to cause people to doubt the goodness of God. The first thing that Satan says to uh, Eve is, he says, did God really say that you're not supposed to eat of any of the trees of the garden? Okay, and so he's, he's questioning, is that, is that really what God said? Did God really say this? Now, obviously, he's, he's distorting the word because God did not say that they couldn't eat of any of the trees of the garden. He said just the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But he's, he's trying to get her to question the truthfulness of God's word. Listen, that is always at the heart of sin. That's fundamental to sin is to try to get us to doubt what God has actually said. I remember hearing a friend of mine told me recently about a conversation he was having with a colleague where uh, this, this co-worker of his, they were discussing uh, what the Bible says about uh, sexual purity and homosexuality and how uh, the Bible says that, that homosexuality is a sin and that you know, sexuality should only be expressed between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. And he said that his colleague said to him, well, um, I don't know if that's true because there are some letters of Paul and there are some uh, scripture that we do not have contained in the Bible. And so I don't know that we have everything that God has said about sexuality and, and what, what that's supposed to look like. Well, what, what is that? That's, that? that's fundamentally what Satan was doing in the garden of trying to, to cast suspicion on the word of God and say, no, does... I know what you think the Bible says, but did God really say that? Now, again, we can say, well, that's foolishness for somebody to, to ask that question. But the truth is, every single time you sin, every single time that I sin, what I'm doing is I'm saying, well, did God really say that? I know what the Bible says about holding grudges, but you don't understand my situation and you don't understand what he or she did to me. I, I know what the Bible says about, you know, sex and marriage and and but you don't understand how much we love each other and how much we care about each other. I know what the Bible says about being generous, but you don't understand my financial situation. 
It's over and over again. I know what the Bible says, but what about my case? What about this exception to what the Bible says? And that's exactly what Satan's trying to do here. He's trying to get uh, Eve to doubt the Word of God. Not only that, not only casting suspicion on the Word of God, but he's casting suspicion on the goodness of God. She goes on to explain. She says, no, 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 we, we can eat of the trees. There's just the one tree that we're not supposed to eat of it. Uh, and, let, and if we do, we're going to die. And he says, no, you're not going to die. God's withholding from you. God, God knows that when you eat that fruit, you're going to become like him. You, you know, God doesn't want you to become like him. And so he's telling you not to do it. He, he's trying to get her to doubt God's goodness. Every time we sin, that's what's happening is we're, we're doubting the goodness of God. We see God and his ways as the lesser deal to what we're wanting in that moment. And so we doubt that God is for us, that he wants what is best for us, and that his way is what is best for us. We, we see God as the lesser deal. That's why people commit sexual sin is because they think, you know, uh, illicit whether it's sexual sin, whether it's premarital or extramarital or whatever, is more pleasurable, is, is going to make me happier, is going to make me more joyful than doing what God has said in the context of marriage. The reason why we lie is because we think in this moment, me kind of manipulating what I say and, and kind of fudging the truth is going to make things go better for me, whether it's in the short term or the long term. But I lie because I think that's going to make things turn out better for me than if I tell the truth, which is what God has told me to do. The reason why we hold on to a grudge is because, again, we don't trust God to deal with it. Romans 12, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We hold on to that grudge because we're, we're saying by holding that grudge, I don't really trust you to take care of this. I, I don't really think that what you said is true or, or good. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose to go this route because this is what is going to bring me more joy or happiness, I think, in the moment. Every time we sin, what we're, what we're doing is we're saying, God, you're withholding your best from me. And so I've got to go around you to get what I actually want. But the truth is, God is not robbing you of joy. He loves you. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows what is best for you. He is not robbing you of your joy. Again, I think about this in terms of being a parent. Uh, I don't know about you guys. When, when our kids were little, now our kids are a little bit, uh, our youngest is nine. But when our kids were little, it was like very difficult to get them to go to bed. Okay? Like they didn't, they didn't want to go to bed. They wanted to stay up as late as they possibly could stay up. And it was like they, they thought they were going to like miss out on something fun that, that, that Ash and I were doing when they went to sleep or whatever. And so it, it's like constantly get up and then put them back and kind of threaten and all that kind of stuff. And you just, you know, it took forever to get them in bed. And then what would happen the next morning when they got up? They were tired. They were exhausted. Why? Because they didn't get as much sleep uh, as they needed to get. And when we try to explain it, it was like, listen, we're not trying to like ruin your fun or rain on your parade or anything. We love you. We want tomorrow to go really well, and so trust us, go to bed when we tell you to, and things are going to work out better for you in the long run. That's what God is doing. Like the whole reason, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, like why did God uh, put this tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and say, all right, you can have everything else, but not that one. Like why, I mean, uh, a couple years, like a year and a half ago, um, we got new windows put in our, our house, which I would not recommend. It's, it's, 
I should have been a, like a window maker for my uh, profession. I would have made a lot more money. But we got new windows put in our house. Like our windows, you couldn't open and, and close them. And so now we have these new windows, and you can open and close them. Well, our, our nine-year-old son is like seven at the time. Uh, his, his room is on the second floor. And there's a, like a, the, the roof to our patio is like right outside his window. And so we made a rule. No opening the window and walking out on the roof of the patio. Literally like an hour later, I'm walking down the hall and the door to his bedroom's closed. And I'm like, that's weird because his doors never close. And so open the door, go in, see the window up. He and his sister walking out on the, uh, on the roof. Why? Because it was there. And it was, a, you know, it's like sometimes I think we, you know, because you make the rule, they want to test it and they want to break it. But that's not exactly what's happening in Genesis chapter 3. Why does God tell them this? It's not just some arbitrary rule. What God is trying to do is he, he's wanting to teach them, he's wanting to teach us that he is the arbiter of what is good and what is evil. That his word is what evaluates what is good and what is evil. And he wants us to not reach around him and try to decide that for ourselves. He wants us to depend upon him and to trust him for that. He, does, he doesn't want us just asserting our, auto, our autonomy, you know, and, and thinking that we know what is best. That's what the Bible says over and over again, for example, in the book of Proverbs. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. Okay? He wants us to depend upon him for the knowledge of good and evil, not upon ourselves. And you can just look around at the world that we live in and see what a wreck we have made of things by asserting our own autonomy. And by calling what God says good, evil, and calling what God says evil, good. And it's happening over and over again. Like one just real clear specific example would be that the, the sexual revolution that began in the 60s and 70s has been a complete and colossal failure. Okay, so that now we can't even agree on what it means to be a man or a woman. And we're having, you know, drag queen hours in, in public libraries with children. Okay, there has been an abject failure. Why? Because we have asserted our autonomy and said to God, no, I know what you said, but our way is best. And this is what is good. And this is what is evil. And we, we see like, like we live in a culture now where people think that the biggest threat to people's lives is saying that a man should be a man and a woman should be a woman. Like that, that's, that's where we're at. Why? Because we have decided that we are the ones who decide what is good and evil. And we're not going to listen to God and let him tell us what that is. That's why that tree was there in the middle of the garden. And so Eve believes the lie that Satan told her. Her passive husband, who's just a, a wimp and who's not being a man, is just standing there by her. He takes some of the fruit. He eats it. And then it breaks. All of that harmony that was happening from the beginning now is broken. And now there is disharmony and there is death. And so... First thing it does is sin affects our relationship with God so that now our relationship with God is broken and is off kilter. There's no more intimacy, right? They're, they're hiding from God. They're, they're, they're not, they're not the, the, the sound of God being in the garden, which used to be a joy to them, is now a terror to them. And so they are hiding from God. Not only that, they've broken their relationship with each other. They're turning on each other. Adam, instead of owning his sin and confessing it, 
He says, well, God, the woman you gave me, she did this. Okay, so one, he's blaming God. You did this, and he's blaming his wife. And now there's, the, the Bible says later in Genesis chapter 3, they're going to want to reverse uh, the role that the woman's going to want to be the leader and the husband's going to want to dominate his wife and all these different things. So now where there was harmony in this relationship, now there is disharmony. And now also there's going to be disharmony with man's relationship with the world. And so things aren't going to work the way that they are supposed to. Childbirth is going to be very difficult. Working the ground and, and, and producing and providing food for your family is going to be very difficult. So all of these things that were in harmony, now they have been broken because of human sin. And so that's why we need the good news of Christmas because sin, both our own personal sin and the curse of sin around us is causing such devastation and destruction in our lives and will eventually lead to death. And so the second thing that we see here is not, not only that we need the good news of Christmas because of our sin, but we have the good news of Christmas because of Jesus Christ. We have the good news of Christmas because of Jesus Christ. There is a, a key verse here in, in chapter 3, which is verse 15, where God makes the promise that there's going to be a Savior who comes who's going to crush the head of the serpent. He's going to be injured in the process, but he's going to crush the head of the serpent and he says there's going to be this cosmic war that goes on throughout history that's going to culminate in the Savior defeating the serpent. He says there in verse 15, I will put enmity, conflict, strife between you and the woman, between the serpent and the woman, and between your seed offspring and her seed offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so he says there's going to be this cosmic war going on between uh, the offsprings, and we see this play out throughout the Bible. Like one of the ways I, I try to think about uh, this is I, um, like sometimes movie illustrations help me understand what's happening in the Bible. And so to help you understand this cosmic war that's being talked about, uh, if you've ever, if you're familiar at all with the, the Terminator series, I don't know how many movies there are, uh, but the, the, original, the original concept was that the machines, which is people are scared of this now, um, with AI technology and all this stuff, but uh, the machines took over the world, okay, and then subjugated humanity under their thumb. But there was this Messiah figure, uh, John Connor, who, you know, was able to rise up with this army and defeat the machines and, and rescue humanity. And so what the machines did in order to, like, try to stop that from happening is they sent a Terminator back in time to try to, to kill Connor's mother before she had him and then him when he was a little kid uh, and to say listen when he's most vulnerable when I can when I can take care of this before he becomes powerful I need to take him out and the Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 12 that that's the exact sort of thing that Satan's been doing all along throughout history Satan knows this promise about a savior who's going to come he's raging against that promise and so he is he is over and over again trying to stop it from happening and so as early as the next chapter Genesis chapter 4 what happens Cain is being influenced by satanic uh, by by Satan himself and he rises up and he murders his brother Abel. Okay? But God keeps the promise because then Seth is born. And he's, Seth's name means another offspring, another seed has been appointed. So God's keeping this promise to bring forward a Savior. Get into the book of Exodus and you have Pharaoh doing what? Killing the Hebrew male babies. 
having them be thrown into the Nile River. What happens if the Hebrew males die or, and the Hebrew line becomes intermarried with the, with the Egyptian line? No Savior comes. But what does God do? Moses is hidden away and rescued as a baby, and he's the one who saves the people from their slavery in Egypt. You move forward in the, the Bible, you get to uh, the story in Second Chronicles where there's this wicked queen named Athaliah who tries to kill all the sons of David. Why would it be a problem if all the sons of David died? Well, because that's the line that Jesus comes from. But there's one baby, Josiah, who is hidden back, and he's the one who comes out and who rescues the people. You have this in the book of Esther where Haman wants to wipe out all of the Jews. He wants to exterminate them all, men, women, and children. And yet God uses Esther to preserve his, his people. And then you get to the New Testament, and what happens when Jesus is born? Herod doesn't like the thought of there being another king and so he tries to kill all the male babies under the age of two but jesus is hidden away he is he is rescued and he is the one who comes out and who saves god's people so we have the bible's teaching us we have enemies enemies who want to destroy us sin is described in genesis chapter 4 as like a predator that's crouching at the door of your house ready to pounce on you satan is described as what a lion that's prowling around and wants to devour you we have an enemy who wants to destroy us and that's why we need a savior and so god says listen even though there's going to be this conflict even though you're going to be under threat from this enemy over and over and over again i am going to save you i am going to rescue you i'm going to crush the enemy's head and then over and over in the bible we see where God is giving us previews of that promise. You can read through the Old Testament and you can see over and over and over again where bad guys keep getting their heads crushed. You can see, for example, in Numbers 24, there's this, this prophecy that's given in Numbers 24 that the Messiah, when he comes, he's going to, the Bible says, crush the forehead of Moab. Okay, Moab was, was seen as like a, the typical enemy of the Israelites. And God said, no, no, no. They're not going to prevail. God's going to crush the head of Moab. You get into the book of Judges, and there's this evil commander named Sisera who's, who's oppressing the people of God. But this woman named Jael takes a tent peg while he's sleeping and drives it through his temple and crushes his head and rescues the people from their oppression. In the book of Judges, you see Gideon capturing the two Midianite princes who've been uh, oppressing the people of God, and he takes their heads off. You see this woman who throws a stone off of a tower, and Abimelech, this evil king who's oppressing the people of Israel, his head is crushed by that millstone. Samson brings down the roof on the Philistine leaders and on their heads. And then David takes a, a stone and a sling and does what? He crushes the head of the giant. Then he takes his own sword and cuts his head off. Over and over and over again, the bad guys are having their heads crushed and God is rescuing his people. And we see this again throughout. Let me just read you some of these places. And this is just a few selections of this. David, when he's describing what God has, has done for him and the promise that God has made to him, says in 2 Samuel 22, verse 43, Then I beat them as fine as the dust of the earth. I trod them like dirt in the streets and I spread them out. He describes his victory as, as, as stomping them out. Listen to what the Bible says in Psalm 68, verses 20 and 21. Our God is the God of salvation. 
And to God the Lord belong escapes from death. But God will wound the head of his enemies, the hairy scalp of the one who still goes on in his trespass. Listen to what the Bible says in Psalm 74, uh, verses 13 and 14. You divided the sea by your strength. You broke the heads of the sea serpents in the water. You broke the heads of Leviathan in pieces and gave him as food to the people inhabiting the wilderness. Listen to Psalm 91, what the Bible says in Psalm 91, verse 11. For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all their ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent. You shall trample underfoot. And listen to Habakkuk, what he says in Habakkuk 3, verse 13. You went forth for the salvation of your people. For the salvation, for salvation with your Messiah, you struck the head from the house of the wicked by laying bare from the foundation to the neck. Over and over and over again in the Old Testament, God says, listen, there's coming a day when I will crush the head of the serpent and rescue you from your sin. And that's what we have at Christmas. Jesus is the Savior that was foretold in Genesis chapter 3. He is born. He goes to the cross. He has his heel bruised by having nails put through his feet. But in his death, he defeats sin, Satan, and death once and for all. And so Chet Fitch, as I talked to you about earlier, he, he worked on this joke for 20 years. He kept updating the mailing lists, writing more cards, giving his barber extra money every time the price of stamps went up. That fall, she said that he looked up at her from his chair and said, you must be getting tired of holding all of those notes for me. I think you'll probably be able to mail them this year. And he died a week later. But here's the deal. 20 years of trying to make a joke about death. 20 years of whistling past the graveyard, pretending like it wasn't real, pretending like it was a joke. Here's the deal. You can't cheat death. You can't joke your way out of it. And from Genesis chapter 3, there is a trail of blood that death has claimed because of human sin. But that trail ends with a baby born in a manger in Bethlehem who goes to a cross in Jerusalem and walks out of an empty tomb. And you can have your sin and your death taken care of by that Savior. Not by being a good person, not by trying to clean yourself up, not by going to church, but by doing the opposite of what Adam and Eve did in Genesis chapter 3. Owning your sin, confessing you have it, and trusting in the Savior who came to die for you. It's fitting that today as a response to this message, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together as a church family. This meal symbolizes the, the death of Jesus Christ, that he literally gave his body and that he shed his blood for our sins. And so we as a family are going to come together and do what the Bible says. We're going to, we're going to take and we're going to eat. But, but we just read in Genesis chapter 3, it's, it's Eve and Adam taking and eating the fruit that got us in this mess in the first place. But as one preacher said, when we come to the Lord's table, it's as if Jesus says, 
to Satan, watch this. I want you to take and I want you to eat because this is my body which is given for you. Listen, the first sin was such a simple thing in the doing of it, just taking a piece of fruit and eating it. Such a simple thing. But the undoing of it was so difficult, it required the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus. But that's what he offers to you. And so if you're a believer, here in just a second, Pastor Jimmy's going to give us instructions. If you're a believer, you're going to get to take and you're going to get to eat. If you're not a believer, then our invitation to you is take Christ as your Savior instead. Let me ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Father, I pray right now in the name of Jesus that this...